Talofalava, you're listening to Pacific Waves from RNZ Pacific, Kowau Koroi Hawkins. Coming up first... We're already way too late. We spent so much time on mitigation believing that it will help, and I just don't see that it happening right now. The leaders of the world's largest carbon-emitting countries are being urged to walk the talk at COP27. Also... According to one of the uh, two MPs, Tulepa should have stepped down because the party did not win. Senior MPs have resigned over leadership concerns from the Opposition Human Rights Protection Party in Samoa. And later on... I've experienced what corporal punishment is. But the important thing is that change is happening. Big strides are being taken to improve child protection in Solomon Islands. The leaders of the world's largest carbon-emitting countries are being urged to walk the talk at the 27th United Nations Climate Change Conference, or COP27, which kicks off on Sunday in Sham el-Sheikh, Egypt. But despite all of the scientific evidence pointing to a catastrophic climate future under business-usual scenario, countries are still failing to meet their commitments under the Paris Climate Agreement to keep global warming below 1.5 degrees Celsius. Finau Funor reports. Pacific Island leaders heading to Egypt have for months been voicing complaints about lacklustre efforts from developed nations to lower fossil fuel emissions and meet climate financing commitments. A former executive director of Palau's Ministry of Infrastructure, Tu T. Shilton, who consulted previous COPs on climate change, says there's widespread frustration and pessimism with COP meetings. I don't want to waste my time talking in, in Egypt, talking about what's already happening on my island. We're already way too late. I, I, my personal opinion is we're way too late, and we are not getting the technology we need to do adaptation. We spent so much time on mitigation, believing that it will help, and I just don't see that it happening right now. It's a sentiment shared by many climate activists. India Logan Riley, a senior member of New Zealand Action Station, says very few governments have fulfilled climate pledges that were made at previous conferences. Climate talks are an interesting space because pledges are made, but then it's really what happens back home in, in those countries that makes the difference. And we already know that many governments, including New Zealand, aren't going to hit their targets based on current solutions that are being funded or current pathways of action that are being taken. However, there is optimism over the increased size and diversity of delegations to COP27. Delegates from 190 countries, including hundreds of climate activists and 90 heads of states are expected, the highest number ever to attend a COP meeting. Tonga Meteorological Services Deputy Director Laitia Fifita says the head of his department is attending to share data on Tonga's climate, which has seen the experience of three devastating cyclones in the last decade alone, including two Category 5 cyclones, Ian in 2014 and Gita in 2017. Um, Not only um, our director is attending this meeting, but also the, the head of government, also the the king and the queen are also attending. So as you can see, it's a nationwide approach taking relevant issues and messages uh, regarding climate and its impacts in small island developing states, including Tonga. But it's not just the Pacific Islands that have suffered extreme climate events. But it's not just the Pacific Islands that have suffered from extreme climate events. This year has seen heat waves causing severe droughts in much of the Northern Hemisphere. 
Temperatures in London rose to over 40 degrees Celsius, the highest ever recorded. In Baghdad, temperatures soared to over 60 degrees Celsius, and across the United States, wildfires scorched over 28,000 square kilometers of land. Tuti Shilton says COP has failed to deliver because there are too many who deny climate change is real. I think we need to stop using the word global warming. I think we need to use the global crisis, climate emergency, getting people to realize this is not something that is not going to happen. It is going to happen. And because of the scale of the economy in the Pacific, we are always going to be the one receiving the brunt of the climate crisis. And we're always going to be the last to get the technology to address those things. COP27 commences on Sunday, the 6th of November, and will run until Friday, the 18th. Still on COP27, all eyes are on world leaders to hold up their end of the bargain and bring the discussion of climate compensation to the table. Last year's climate talks ended in acrimony between rich and developing countries over cash for loss and damage. But this topic has yet again failed to make the agenda. Pacific leaders, however, remain steadfast in their plight to have their voices heard and will still lobby for discussions on accountability. To better understand the loss and damage finance, RNZ reporter Hamish Cardwell spoke with University of Canterbury professor Stephen Ratuva, who explains the Pacific's position. Tell me, going into this conference, it started, there started to be discussions about serious efforts by countries to get loss and damage, to get money from rich countries to the developing world. I just wondered if you could kind of explain roughly, you know, there's a couple of different levels eh, and different pots of money. If you just kind of sketch broadly what those pots are and who's asking for money. Yeah, basically the loss and damage has been one of the big issues in the Pacific. Um, The loss and damage has to do with a whole lot of things. Uh, That is one of the big uh, issues and being able to identify what those things are. Uh, one is infrastructure. Another one has to do with issues of well-being, like housing uh, and health and all those, uh, and, and uh, also the environment on which they they live uh, in terms of protecting their shoreline against uh, uh, waves and big uh, natural calamities. And uh, also something which has not been talked about is to do with uh, social and cultural and psychological an intellectual loss and damage, uh, which is much more implicit, much more subtle in a lot of cases, and much more indirect. But it's long term. You can fix a seawall. You, you can fix houses. But the impact on people, particularly the, uh, uh, the long-term trauma, there's been a lot of research done on the uh, trauma which people experience during extreme calamities. Uh, research done in the United States on slavery and how that becomes generational, intergenerational. Um, and recently, the big, uh, you know, category five cyclones in Fiji, for instance, people are still traumatized. And the trauma, uh, according to research, actually is not just psychological, it also um, puts stress on, the, uh, on people's biology and gives rise to genetic transformation, which can then be uh, inherited through generations. So trauma can be a long term. And that's something which uh, then can lead to all kinds of social issues later on. So it's just not just the climate that you're worrying about, it's the long term uh, impact on human society. So uh, yeah, 
the, the, the climate finance there are different kinds of climate financing takes place. Uh, you have the uh, the Green Climate uh, Fund, uh, which is a big one. And part of the problem with the uh, funding has to do with di different levels. One is uh, the gap between what countries have committed, at least verbally, and um, and whether the money actually is being delivered. Um, the $100 billion never eventuated in terms of the full amount being paid for all kinds of reasons. And also, a lot of that money does not really trickle down to communities. When money comes from the international organization like the UNFCCC, part of the process is that designated international organizations like the World Bank or the Asian Development Bank are the ones who who been identified as the implementing agencies. It's as if the local communities or the governments, for that matter, are not being trusted. So there's an issue of, of, of trust there. There's an issue of uh, who actually gets the money. And then, uh, recently, uh, because a lot of the projects need expertise, so a lot of the expertise comes from overseas, private companies. Let me give you one example. The, um, the Solomon Islands hydroelectric power station, funded by the, uh, part of the money came from the uh, uh, Green Climate Fund. And uh, some of it came from private, uh, from the Asian Development Bank. Asian Development Bank already had a, an agreement uh, with, uh, with Korea. Any climate funding, which has to do with the public and private a partnership, should be given to uh, Hyundai. So the Hyundai uh, you know, uh, engineering company was very much involved. So a lot of corporations have come in. And basically what you're seeing here is a transfer of money from, from, from public finance into private hands. That's where a lot of money is going to. It's just like aid, New Zealand aid and Australian aid. Although they talk about uh, hundreds of millions of dollars going to the Pacific or going wherever. Uh, at the end of the day, it's the contractors who take the money. Um, so uh, that's one of the big issues. Do you, are you aware that there might be, you know, it's going to be a really big push to, to get some sort of um, money over and above it to to the developing countries? Different countries have their own needs. Different countries would make, uh, you know, and different regions of the world in, in terms of what they call it, uh, normally referred to as the national, national adaptation mitigation agenda. Yeah, certainly uh, the two major allocations for climate funding have been uh, on mitigation and adaptation. Uh, in the last few years, there's been more funding going to mitigation than adaptation. And in the case of mitigation, a lot of it was going into energy. And behind that are the energy companies themselves, uh, so that uh, they can be part of the transformation, uh, because a lot of the energy technology are held by companies. Um, and uh, when you're talking about adaptation, a lot of the adaptation issues uh, have to do with the global South countries, including the Pacific and Africa as well. And uh, so there's been uh, there's been a call to increase the adaptation funding, but uh, at the same time, local communities are talking about not so much adaptation because when you adapt, you're basically trying to uh, respond to the uh, changes in the uh, to the conditions. Uh, when in fact, what has been uh, one of the big issues has to do with uh, resilience and how do they build resilience in the long term. And uh, it's not just to do with funding. In fact. A strong point of view, which is coming from a lot of global South countries. Yes, funding is important. Um, the funding at the moment is not sufficient. But also, how do you uh, create resilience within the community uh, in terms of uh, their lifestyle, in terms of the environment, in terms of their systems of housing 
and health care and support systems within, within countries. Two senior MPs in Samoa's opposition Human Rights Protection Party have resigned from their political party and become independents in parliament. They are Faliata No. 4 MP, Ale Vena Ale, and Siumu MP, Tu Anasi Leota. The pair told local media about the departure from the party, which had ruled Samoa for almost four decades until last year's election. Tu said the village endorsement of his candidacy wasn't based on the political party he served. He said the duo had raised issues with party management but were ignored. Ale told media his constituency supports him moving away from the party. The MP's resignations follow the suspension of HRPP leader and former Prime Minister Tuilaepa Sailele Malialingooi from Parliament, along with the party's secretary, Lealai Leapule Rimoni Ayafi. I spoke with our Samoa correspondent, Altangavaya, Tipi Altangavaya, on Friday about the recent resignations. Two of the uh, 22 members of the uh, Human Rights Protection Party, or HRPP, have uh, resigned as of yesterday from the party. And before this happened yesterday on Thursday, uh, there was a lot of speculations uh, several months ago on what is going to happen uh, within the uh, HRPP caucus, especially the uh, names of the MPs who are now resigning were mentioned as those who are uh, insisting on the caucus, especially the leader, to call uh, a meeting because they they want a change of leadership. Now it's happening. They resigned from the HRPP uh, party. They are now moving as a, uh, as an independent. They cannot join uh, another political party because of the uh, requirements of the, uh, uh, the Electoral Act and also the standing orders. They cannot join a party, but they can uh, be independents because once they join a political party, their seats will become vacant. Now, um, just maybe lay out for us how this has played out off the back of and maybe maybe even for context just explain a bit um the significance of the recent resuspensions of the leader yeah the significance of the uh resuspension of the uh, leader and uh, one of the senior mp who is the secretary of this uh, political party must be another contributing factor to the two mp's uh resignations but in the uh, press conference yesterday they did not say that that was another contributing factor to their decision. All they were saying was uh, they they want to leave the party because the, the leader is not listening to what they want, is to call a caucus meeting and have the leadership uh, being uh, re-elected again with, from members of the uh, caucus. Uh, now, the, the suspension of... Uh, um to Ilaipa and the, and the secretary of the party, does that negate them from being MPs? Are they still MPs, but outside, locked out of parliament? They are still members of parliament, but uh, their suspension means they can no longer uh, play any role as a member of parliament. Even their membership in parliamentary committees, they are also suspended. Their allowances are also suspended as well as their normal salary as members of parliament. Now, um, I've spoken with a legal expert on someone law who says the the punishment of the MPs 
also punishes the electorate, which might be unconstitutional. Are we seeing any any legal challenge to the suspension? Tuilepa has already mentioned in his uh, media uh, broadcast from the main uh, headquarters of the party some weeks ago, after the suspension for two years, that they are considering taking this uh, resuspension to the court as well. So we are waiting patiently to see when that uh, challenge is going to be filed. Right. So um, so despite the suspension, um, the state of play right now is Twilep is still the head of the HRPP, um, which is uh, the, the cause of some of this disquiet over uh, a meeting that they are calling for to be called to discuss that leadership. Is he is still the leader. He is still the leader because the suspension is nothing to do with the uh, political parties. Uh, uh, own uh, administration, he's still the leader. But according to one of the uh, two MPs who now uh, left uh, the party, Tulepa should have uh, stepped down after the April uh, general election uh, last year because the party did not win. And also in the uh, by-elections after those uh, petitions were filed in court uh, in November last year, they did not make any number to, to form another, uh, you know, another government. And uh, up until now, from the 22 seats they hold after the general elections and by-elections, they're now uh, short of two, so they only have 20 seats now. Compared to the the ruling uh, party, they are now holding, uh, they're still holding 32 seats. TP, always a pleasure. Thank you, Koroi. Manuela weekend. A new project, Ending Violence Against Children, has been launched in the Solomon Islands in a bid to take big strides towards improvement of child protection. The coalition that was formally launched on Tuesday includes Child Fund, Save the Children and World Vision and is supported by the New Zealand Aid Programme. Save the Children New Zealand's Advocacy Director, Jackie Salvi, told Lydia Lewis at the moment the legal age for marriage in the Solomon Islands is 15 and the coalition hopes to work with the government to raise the age to 18, among tackling many other issues while working with community groups. So currently we are in the Solomon Islands, and we are, uh, have launched the End in Violence Against Pikanini program. Um, we launched that formally yesterday, and we are now uh, that's kicked off a three-day workshop, which looks at skill, um, skill building, extending capacity at the local level and working together to create an ongoing plan to take this campaign forward. What is the ongoing plan and who is there taking part in these workshops? Well, we've got a number of local stakeholders that are part, that are part of this coalition. We've also got the key INGOs, Save the Children, World Vision and Child Fund here. And we have a representative from the NZ Government Aid Program who's come along to uh, join in the workshop and learn about the program and um, also be there as that supportive voice from um, the New Zealand government. Who's contributing what and where is it going to? It's a jointly uh, funded program between Child Fund, Save the Children and World Vision and it is funded by the New Zealand Government Aid Program. Uh, The New Zealand government committed $1 million toward ending violence in the Pacific and this program won a funding award from that commitment and that is um, being used to help fund alongside partner funding for this. How significant is this work? What do you hope to tackle? 
Well, this is incredibly significant because all around the world we know that there are high levels of violence against children and the Solomon Islands are really putting their hand up and saying it's time to stop, it's time to end violence against children and it's a call out to the Solomon Islands as a people to end violence against Tikkanini and that's the uh, pigeon translation of the program. So this is exciting, it brings together coalition partners, uh, child rights organisations that are invested in changing uh, the situation of violence against children, and we're doing it with um, in government partnership and the support of the New Zealand government. And I think there is much we'll be able to learn from this project, including for New Zealanders, how are we working together to make changes. We know that just New the Solomon Islands has issues of violence against children, and so does New Zealand. And to change it, you've got to put your hand up, and you've got to commit to change and uh, ending ending this situation. What response have you had from the government? Well, government officials did attend the launch yesterday and they were very supportive of this initiative. They they um, acknowledged the opportunity to work in partnership with um, the leading NGOs and also the New Zealand government. So there's a lot of um, support and positive commitment to this partnership and they're also excited to see what will happen uh, as we progress over the coming years. And there was a report, I understand, that took place between uh, 2008 and 2017 by the Solomon Islands government and they found that it's not a safe place for children. Did that play a role in informing you as to whether or not you wanted to step in and help or not or what was it? What was the catalyst? Yes, absolutely. There's a journey of the evidence base where different reports had been had been established to look at the situation of violence, including a report led by Save the Children called Unseen and Unsafe, and that specifically looked at levels of investment um, on ending violence against children in the Pacific. And through that, that report, that research, we were able to show that the New Zealand government had not uh, specifically committed funding to ending violence against children. We were able to then put a very strong call to action to the New Zealand government to make that investment, and they responded by announcing that million-dollar investment to end violence against children in the Pacific. So there was a, a very specific journey of collecting the evidence and using that to call for action and the government responding to that call. And on the timeline, is this the first initiative to receive, you know, get 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 a chunk of funding from that, or where is this um, on yes. the... Yeah, okay. Yes, this is the first initiative that kicks off um, that specific funding. And because of that, how significant is this, or what does this mark? Well, it really is a milestone about taking seriously child protection and taking action on that. Often child protection is hidden within the roles and responsibilities of families, but as a community, as a society at all levels, from parents to community to teachers, government professionals, um, to policy legislation, decision makers, we've all got to work together to end violence against children. And this this program is specifically looking to work in this way. We're not just targeting, we're not making it just a government problem or just an individual parent problem. We're looking at the whole picture and taking a holistic approach and, and aiming to bring everyone along with us for this change. Thank you so much. Was there anything else that you wanted to add? Just that we are very grateful to the Solomon Islands government and also to the New Zealand government for working together with us in this important partnership. And we are very hopeful and excited about the change that this will bring for children and keeping them safe and protecting them from violence. Still on this story, Leah Lewis also spoke with Dudley Tawari, who is attending the workshop. He's a counsellor at Talkspot, a partnership between Child Fund and the Hunera City Council. 
He opened up about trauma in his family that pushes him to do his best for Solomon Island children in his work. The 29-year-old says high rates of poverty, political and economic instability and ethnic tensions, coupled with very limited public mental health support, are all contributing to rising levels of social and emotional issues in youth in Solomon Islands. A warning, this next story discusses sensitive issues and topics such as suicide and may be distressing for some listeners. To give a testimony of how the impact of top sport is, uh, I think I would like to share my experience. Uh, from my experience, before coming in contact with top sport project, talking about social and emotional well-being, I was someone who experienced a relationship that is toxic, a toxic relationship for six years. And so it even reaches the point where sometimes I was thinking of having the suicidal, suicidal thoughts. But then when I came and uh, came to know about TalkSpot project and start to involve in it, and start to talk about managing your emotions, managing your depression, stress, anger management, and all this, it really helps me out. And it, it pushed me out from that uh, six years of toxic relationship. And now I'm uh, talking to you. I'm a free, happy patient. How did that transition happen from going through such a toxic relationship to then becoming a support person, somebody who is then supporting others? Well, thank you. Uh, I become a youth case because of the support system that I'm having through my engagement with Honiara City Council uh, Youth Division. And so that helps me pull out from uh, where I am in the previous times uh, to where I am today. Thanks to the New Zealand government through Talksport uh, Child for New Zealand, uh, they gave me the opportunity to take uh, to do uh, Certificate 4 in Youth Work at uh, APTC, that is Australian uh, Technical, uh, Australian Pacific Technical Coalition. And so, yeah, uh, I would like to say a massive thank you to the people of New Zealand for the support that they rendered towards uh, young people in Honiara, especially in terms of capacity building to help us cope with uh, issues that we face. Is it frustrating knowing that other young people are suffering without the support? To me, I can say that it's a sad thing for me to see uh, young people uh, experience or uh, having difficult times coping with social and emotional well-being issues that they are facing on a daily basis. It's sad because uh, we don't have the limited, uh, we don't have enough resources to, to help them. It's also sad because we don't have enough manpower to, to, or enough uh, funding to carry out the good works in our provinces and so to me it's a bit sad and not only that but it's also motivating it helps me to whenever i get a chance to talk with someone or to talk with a young person um, i must do my best to help him or her aware of the first services that we provided here and how they can access the services to help them and the marriage age is still 15 what do you think of that? I'm thinking it would be great if it would increase the uh, marriage age to 18. Yeah.
Do you know anyone that has been married at 15 and how did it impact them? I have a personal connection to, to this person. I had this third sibling of mine. Uh, actually, in our family, I'm the eldest. I have three sisters. My third-born sister got married when she was in, like, grade six or class six. Yeah, so I think she was about 15 years, uh, less than 15 years old during that time. My sister uh, decided to marry. She took off and got married. But then later down the line, I think after having two children, her husband left her with two children. But I, as an elderly brother, I feel that it is my responsibility to look after my sister. Also, my father, it is a responsibility to look after their daughter and to look after their grandchildren. And so, yeah, uh, our cultural system has helped us to be supportive to our families despite of uh, whatever we are facing. Yeah. What was your experience growing up with corporal punishment? Is that still an issue? Is that still involved in schools and in families? Can you explain to me the current situation as you know regarding corporal punishment? To be honest with you, me as a person of being the eldest in our family, I've experienced what corporal punishment is. But I'm really thankful for uh, donors and even the government advocating for corporal punishment or to, to put a stop on corporal punishment. I see it changes. I can say uh, in our family, from my third, fourth, we have five, five in the family. My youngest brother and my youngest sister don't have to experience a corporal punishment anymore. Uh, it is because my mom and dad... Uh, they have the knowledge on the impact of corporal punishment on children. And so it changes a lot at the moment in Solomon Islands. Some still practice it in remote areas. It is, I believe it is because of information didn't reach them. Uh, they didn't have access to such trainings or opportunities that some in Honiara and other provinces have. But the important thing is that change is happening. Just before we go, it's a busy weekend of sport ahead for the Pacific with rugby, rugby league and sevens among the action. The quarterfinals of the Rugby League World Cup start tomorrow morning, New Zealand time with Australia playing Lebanon. England will play PNG and New Zealand will play Fiji on Sunday morning. And then on Monday morning is the blockbuster clash between Samoa and Tonga. The Hong Kong Sevens is back for the first time since 2019. It's traditionally a busy few days, but health restrictions may dampen the party atmosphere. Favourites Fiji are in a group with Japan, Spain and the USA. The tricky group is Group A, which includes other top sides, Australia, New Zealand and Samoa. The final will be at 7pm on Sunday Hong Kong time, which will be midnight in New Zealand. New Zealand, Samoa and Fiji are also playing rugby in Europe over the weekend and the semi-finals will be played in the Women's Rugby World Cup in Auckland. That's Specific Waves for today. Remember, you can download us for free to your device from Spotify, iHeart, Apple Podcasts. And if you're using Apple, please leave us a rating so others can also find us. Perfect night, Tofa,